0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in DC, and I am your host, Julie Kurtz, stepping in for the fabulous Kiko Born through the end of 2019. Lunch Agenda is a podcast that brings to light lesser known parts of the food system. Lunch Agenda has featured series about food access, food investment, distribution, and how you do food education. You can find all the interviews on your favorite podcast app or at lunchagenda.simplecast.com. As your host through the remainder of 2019, I am thrilled to bring you a series called Eating the Green New Deal. Last week in episode one of "Great Eating the Green New Deal, I spoke with Ferd Hefner. Um, he helped us get an overview of the Green New Deal resolution and how it relates to the long history of sustainable agriculture movements and policy in this country. Over the coming weeks on Lunch Agenda, we'll, get, we'll continue to speak with guests from across the food system, from farmers and scientists to advocates, food businesses and legislators who are all stepping up the dialogue about food and agriculture's role in preserving, preserving our planet and our communities. This week on Lunch Agenda, we are incredibly lucky to have two farmers with us to help us understand how the Green New Deal does and does not relate to their work. We'll hear how they are striving to practice conservation strategies that enrich the land while enriching their own rural farming communities. So, let me tell you a bit about our esteemed Lunch Agenda guest today. Scott Bluebow is a fifth-generation farmer and rancher from Tonkawa, Oklahoma. I just asked him for that. Did I get it right, Scott?
1: You're pretty close. Pretty close. Takawa.
0: Takawa. Oof. I'm going to get it right by the end of this podcast. Taukawa, Oklahoma, with a 3,500-acre family farming operation in Kay, Osage, and Noble Counties in north-central Oklahoma, right up there near the Kansas border. His agriculture operation consists of registered Angus cattle, where he does an annual production sale as well as several crops, soybeans, wheat, corn, hay, and milo, which some of our guests may, our listeners may know as sorghum. Scott is also a leader in the Oklahoma farming community. He serves on the National Farmers Union board and was elected uh, president of American Farmers and Ranchers, also known as the Oklahoma Farmers Union Cooperative. Our second guest, Roger Noonan, hails from Middle Branch Farm in New Hampshire, a diversified organic family farm that markets primarily directly to consumers. Roger is a is president of the New England Farmers Union, serves on the board of the National Farmers Union, and was appointed a representative to the EPA, that's the Environmental Protection Agency's um, Farm, Ranch, and Rural Communities Federal Advisory Committee. Roger is quite active in the New Hampshire agriculture community as a founding member of a local harvest CDCSA, supervisor on the Hillsborough County Conservation District president of New Hampshire Association of Conservation District, as well as advising and consulting uh, on a number of things. So Scott and Roger, we are so thrilled to welcome you here as guests on Lunch Agenda. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Well, thank you for having us. I'm excited to be here.
0: Great. Well, um, Scott and Roger, I want to start out... To start out, I just want to give listeners a glimpse of what your what is your daily grind. Um, what does a typical week look like for you, or, or is there even a typical week? Um, so how does your work uh, change throughout the season? Uh, Scott, should we go ahead and start with you?
1: Okay, yeah, I'll be glad to. So um, I was elected president of uh, American Farmers Ranchers and Oklahoma Farmers Union in February, so, I kind of traded in my boots and uh jeans for a suit and tie, and uh now I'm working out of Oklahoma City five to six days a week here as an advocate for um our membership. We have about fifty nine thousand members here in Oklahoma that I speak uh on behalf of, and um my youngest son now has came back uh, from college and has taken over our family operation there. And um, just this May, and, and so he's in charge, and he's running things there. And I try to get home on the weekends if possible uh, to kind of coach him along and help him along and and all. But uh, I'm extremely busy uh, here in Oklahoma City uh, representing the entire state um, agriculture producers.
0: Okay, so your son will be the the sixth generation, is that right? Yes,
1: he's the sixth generation of our family to farm we're a land run family um, with several members of our family made the Oklahoma land run in the Cherokee outlet and uh, we've been here ever since.
0: Okay okay um and and the sort of annual pattern on your family's farm what is does what does it look like um what do the well, different seasons uh, look like?
1: Yeah so right now on the on the ranch there uh We're weaning calves so that most of our calves are actually born in December, January, February. Um, and so we're weaning those calves now from their mothers. We're getting them started on their feed, uh, doing all the vaccinations programs that we do. And, and for the folks in the town, that's similar to, uh, children getting their vaccinations before they go off to school. Mm -hmm. And it's to keep them from, uh, keep them from getting sick when they, are uh, suddenly mixed with other children or other calves in this instance, and then we'll put those calves uh, once they're weaned. That's about a seven ten day process. Then those calves will go back out on a uh, winter wheat pasture, and they'll graze that uh, the entire winter until spring.
0: Okay, and you do both crops and pasture. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we're just uh, a few uh, days or a few. Maybe even a couple of weeks away from uh soybean harvest here as well, uh we have the combines out of the barn, and uh we're we're kind of, we're ready to go to start that harvest. We're also plant uh finishing up planting our winter wheat at this time, so we plant the wheat in the fall and then it's harvested in June okay. um or we will graze it out, and uh we'll leave the cattle on it uh, until June and let them just harvest it naturally and um and, and never pull a combine and harvest the grain that way.
0: Okay. So, and do are most of your crops for feed or do you sell them as well?
1: We sell most of the soybeans. Okay. Um the Milo or the grain sorghum uh we use for most of that for feed for the livestock. Okay. And then we produce alfalfa hay as well for the livestock and uh, we used to sell some, and pretty much now it's all for our own use, yes. Okay. We have our own feed uh, mill on the ranch, and um, so we make uh, most of our own feed out of the crops that we grow here, yes.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you, Scott. Um, and I think you also have the honor of being the the Lunch Agenda's first Midwestern farmer on the show. Oh, well, great. Yeah, not well, the first grain farmer and, and soon to be followed by other Midwestern farmers. But thanks for breaking the ice for us. You bet. Uh, So, Roger, you are based in New Boston, New Hampshire, so that's the part of the country you can really tell that the the early British settlers, colonists, were were missing home, I think, throwing new in front of everything. Um, So if I've got this right, you you farm uh, vegetables, flowers, uh, pastured pork, Um, you do uh, laying heads for eggs, as well as broilers, which is a a very foreboding name for those chickens, and... uh, and the one of the great glories of the north country maple syrup um is that right
2: that that's right although um like scott when i became the president of the new england chapter of the farmers union i too sort of handed uh, day-to-day operations over uh to my uh, adult children which which you know in a small farm is is kind of a good thing it lets um lets let lets them um make their own mistakes, um, instead of, uh, working in dad's shadow. So it, it was, um, it was really beneficial that way. Um, and so our, our, organ, our organization has evolved. Uh, you know, we were, when I started, we were wholesale farmers, you know, I mostly was focused on, uh, trying to grow a lot of a few things and put them in trucks. And, um, and then we went to a more of a direct marketing with the, with the CSA and, uh, mm. you know, about just uh, just under 500 members, um, but once I started okay. doing the farmers' union stuff, we sort of scaled back on that. And my daughter is more into uh, flowers and uh, um, working in um, increasingly, I think, doing more weddings. So, okay. Um, and most of the livestock now is just for our a very small sort of uh, group of people that we, um, you know, friends and families uh, for the for the livestock. We have a much smaller land base. Than uh, my friend Scott does um, you know so i 've got uh about two hundred acres, including the woodlands uh, and thirty acres of what we call tillable ground that I can actually uh plant vegetables and cultivate and then okay. uh, the balance in hay and pasture okay. so it 's a much different scale um, and but you know well, i the one thing I have instead of land a lot of land is uh probably within an hour 's drive of uh over a million customers, so. Sure. So, you know, there is that, um, but um, mostly right now, me personally, I'm doing more of uh, the advocacy uh,
0: work, yeah. Okay, okay, and um, so what was the, the access to this this million company, customers, was that a lot of the motivation behind changing, uh, diversifying the farm more?
2: Well, this farm's been here since 1764, and it's changed a lot over the 200 and some odd years. And, you know, going from, you know, sort of that subsistence farm uh, on uh, what probably was a frontier to um, orchard um, and then uh, added dairy and then added uh, around the late 1800s became a summer guest house, so agritourism. Mm. Uh, early on, um, and then more focused on dairy, and then we brought it to sort of the more I want to kind of say back to the beginning and being highly diversified, but um, you yeah. know having that access to uh, uh, so many people. You know, we're not we're not um, a two hour ride out in the middle of nowhere anymore. We're right uh, we're right in suburbia, so it's easy wow. for our customers to come to us. I see, and just as easy as. For us to, you know, go down to, um, you know, we we do a, there's a business here that we have CSA drop off at and, you know, like Stonyfield Yogurt and a few other companies that we go and deliver our our, uh, vegetable shares to. Okay. So it's a a completely different, not that that doesn't happen in other parts of the country, but, you know, the population density up here makes it uh, a pretty good place for direct market farmers.
0: Absolutely. You can't really
2: do a lot of commodity crops up here if We just you don't have the land base.
0: Sure, sure. And I, I um, so I, you know, I was going to kind of look at this later in the. But I, I think that about seventy-five percent of Oklahoma is farmland compared to about seven percent in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those num- numbers sound about right yeah, yeah. That's 80, probably it. Yeah. yeah no no New Hampshire's got plenty of the the mountains can you know that's that's pretty tough farmland to, 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 to till so but that, that's both cropland and um, and uh, pasture land and, and rangeland but but I also know that that New Hampshire has lost about 70% of its farmland in the past century and 60% of its cropland. So there's awful be also been major changes in New Hampshire and that, that in, in, in the northeast in general that hasn't been true of Oklahoma. So, right. Yeah. But,
2: you know, we do have within the New England and northeast, there are there are areas that have um, extremely productive uh, uh, farmland, um, the Connecticut River Valley up in Arista County in Maine. Um, the entire Connecticut-led, the breadth of River Valley is extremely fertile in other parts of our um, Mac River Valley has some good farmland. So there's plenty of good high-quality farmland, and then yeah. there's plenty of people doing quite well on the uplands and the bony glacial tills that make up much of New England. And that's that's pretty much what I'm on.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Bony
2: glacial till.
0: Bony glacial till. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's a great band name, I think. Yeah, yeah. It could be, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, I I want to talk a little bit. You but both of you have mentioned the importance of being uh, stewards of the land and 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 conservation. And so I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit what that means on your operations and what are what are some of the practices that you implement in order to do that.
2: Well, I'm going to let Scott take that first because he's in the uh, in the birthplace of modern soil conservation work. So.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'll be glad, be glad to. So, uh, really, the 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 conservation movement really started here in Oklahoma um, after the Dust Bowl, and uh, just a terrible dry time in the 30s, um, and just had um, with no rain for years and years. A lot of land was uh, tilled up uh, out in the, the western part of the state. That probably never should have been, um, but it was homesteaded, and, and it was plowed up. And they had a few good years of raising the wheat crops out there. Mm-hmm. And so um, they actually tilled more land up, and and then the dry, dry years came, uh, and the dust bolt came with that. And, um, the, you know, during the dust bolt days, there finally was attention tension drawn uh, from Congress when uh, one day the skies turned turned uh, dark, there in in Washington D.C. Uh, and as far as New York City, that mm-hmm. dust from Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, Texas all blew in. And uh, anyway, terrible, terrible time. Uh, many people were dislocated during that time. The term "okie" uh, actually evolved out of that. That terrible uh, time where uh, folks moved to California, uh, packed up whatever they could and left the state because they couldn't, they just couldn't survive, couldn't Mm -hmm. make a living at all off the land. And so they left here. So after that, um, Roosevelt then started uh, the first conservation course and um, uh, new techniques were developed for farming here, um, along with shelter belts being planted that you can. See to this very day are still in place uh, with both trees and grass, and um, we just do such a much better job today in controlling um, in the erosion, uh, of both wind and water erosion as well, and a lot you know just due to um, the conservation movement. And then in the 1980s, we saw. Um, a considerable amount of that land in the western part of the state signed up into the Conservation Reserve Program. Okay. Uh, so that land was actually planted back to grass and left in a permanent grass stand. And um, so there's still quite a bit of that out there. And then one of the new ideas that, that uh, we've been floating around to Congress is a modern conservation program to where we could take. So right now we have this huge surplus of grain um, in the United States, and we're not able to export that grain. There's no buyers for it in the world, so we're just stacking it up, and and we've we have to prices that are extremely depressed, 50 to 60 percent below what they were just six years ago, and way below cost of production, but we're still we're still cultivating that land still farming that land um and so one of our our, our new proposal here is a a short-term conservation plan uh, to plant some of those acres into a legume crop such as a clover or an alfalfa mm. crop and get it established out there uh for a period of maybe 5 to 7 years to take that good land highly productive land, actually out of production to reduce our surplus mm-hmm. of excess grain, they're raising the price to a, to a level that would um, be sustainable and uh, at the same time um, really build the soil up. Um, and we can increase the soil health so much with a program like this. We could sequester carbon. Out of the atmosphere and into the ground, we can the legume crops would actually produce nitrogen mm-hmm. and build the soil, build the health of the soil up, and then we'd have less water and less wind erosion as well here, and so we accomplish so many good things um, by by a conservation program such as this, and then at some day realistically the world is going to need that food, it's going to need that grain. And so, when when that time comes and that land is needed Mm. to go back into production, it will be the soil will be more healthy. It'll be more productive than it's ever been, and it'll raise bigger and better crops to feed a hungry world when it's necessary. When that land needs to come back into production. So this is not um, this proposal is not for highly erodible land or poor land. But actually, good working land that could be idle for a period of of years uh, to actually improve the soil, build that soil yeah. health, and then put it back in production when it's actually needed the, the grain is needed in the world yeah that's, that's our proposal it's somewhat unique're yeah. we're, we're, we're we're pushing in congress
0: yeah and i and I realize I want to make sure our listeners kind of grasp what um, what conservation means. Because we, um, we're we going to talk more about some of this in, in the upcoming episodes. We've got a soil scientist coming up in a couple weeks um, who's going to talk with another farmer in Nebraska. Um, so when you talk about land that, that probably shouldn't have been tilled, you're talking about lands that are, are more sensitive and um, will that, that soil will more easily erode. So in the sense yeah. that there's, some lands are more suitable for growing co- crops, and a lot of other lands, um, they, they, they might be more suitable for, for rangeland or, or perennial crops that you leave in um, year after year. But if you are, are tilling that soil year after year, um, a lot of land can't handle that kind of... Uh, it's pretty aggressive work to, to till the soil every year and to, to replant every year. Is that right?
1: Yeah, there's certain parts of, uh, at least the western part of Oklahoma... It's very dry, and um, our annual rainfall out in the western part of the state might only be 12 to 15 inches of rainfall a year. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and then if we get into a drought period uh, that's less than that for several years, then it can cause a real, a real big problem. So there's some places out there in the west that have irrigation, but most of that country is still dry land farmed. Yeah. So it's totally dependent upon the rainfall, and um, and there was some highly erodible land that probably should never have been plowed up
0: yeah.
1: um, as well out there.
0: And the modern and concert- some of that
1: land is now going being planted back to grass, um, and and used as as cattle grazing, okay. um, or hay production instead of cropping it year after year after year like that. So it it. It uh, does vary from places to places in the state, but um, but during the see so this was all prairie grass, native prairie grass, and until the land run, and then you had homesteaders claiming 160 acres uh, in the run, mm-hmm. and then at that time, uh, the price of grain was high, and so uh, a, a big, uh, a, a very great amount of that prairie grass was. Then plowed under and put into wheat production, and for a while it worked. And, yeah. and then the dry years came, and the drought and the dust bowl, and then it didn't work anymore.
0: And again, and so just to clarify to for, these. for our listeners, so that the land run we're talking about, the Homestead Act that guarantee if 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 people were willing yes. to settle out west, that they were they were guaranteed that 160 acres that the federal government would give them—is that?
1: Well, close. Close. Um, So they actually had a a race for the land, and it was the the first come, first serve kind of a deal. And you could claim 160 acres if you were the first one to claim it. Okay. And then you had to live on that land for seven years and improve it. Hmm. So improve it might be drill a water well, build a house, uh, build a fence. Um, till the land, put it into production, into crops. Mm. Something you had to do something, and live on it for seven years, and then at the end of that seven years, uh, the U.S. government issued land patents to those families, and it was their land at that point.
0: Okay, okay. So, uh, uh, more the thinking about your mo- the modern conservation program that you were talking about, um, that that Oklahoma is discussing that almost might be a new version of of the homestead uh, uh, act to to think about a new way of thinking about improving the land by thinking about from a conservation perspective and not just a productivity perspective
1: right it's 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 simple we have an overproduction of grain uh we don't have markets for it the the world doesn't you know doesn't want our grain right now so why why keep uh, overproducing and keep causing more of the same issue, Uh, if we can idle some of that land and build the soil health and make it better um, and do all the good environmental things that we talked about. In the meantime, uh, we just think that's a a great thing, and someday the world will need that grain production, but this land will be ready to go back into production Hmm. and, and just raise super crops then.
0: Wow. Well, that is um, really exciting to think about what, um, what, um, what farmers there locally are coming up with, that they're coming up with their own solutions and ideas that could be um, both solutions for the soil and the climate, um, as well as uh, being mindful of, of food necessities um, in the future. So that's really exciting. Uh, we're going to take a quick break Um, so and then when we come back I want to talk a little bit more about some of the social aspects of your farming community so we will be right back Agenda listeners, I am your host Julie Kurtz. We are broadcasting live for the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. We're talking today with Scott Bluebell of Oklahoma and Roger Noonan of New Hampshire. So, as we dive back in, I want to shift our focus now to some of the social aspects of the agricultural communities where you guys work. Um, And so to help paint that picture, I just want to give a a little overview of agriculture in both Oklahoma and in New Hampshire, um, and just let some of the numbers paint a picture for us of the similarities and difference. So Oklahoma, I believe, has just shy of 80,000 farms in the state, um, with an average of about 435 acres. uh, And overall farmland, as I said before, occupies about three quarters of the state. and uh, about a third or so of that land is cropland, um, soybeans, corn, sorghum, rye, canola, oats. But over half of Oklahoma's farms um, raise cattle. Oklahoma has more cattle than people, which is more that I can say for D.C. for one. Um, and then in New Hampshire, we've got a slightly different story Um only about 4100 farms and uh, on on about 7% of the uh, of total land average farm size more like 103 acres um, and uh, as i said before new hampshire like the rest of the new east has has lost a lot of um, its farmland in the past century uh, new hampshire also has more people than cows so but despite a lot of these differences, that rural life and agriculture has a, really powerfully shaped some of the culture in, in both in both states and both economies. And so, um, Roger and Scott, I know that that the community aspects, both in the way that you farm, um, Scott, I know that your family farm invites uh, guests, you host guests, you have visitors. Uh, Roger, you sell directly to consumers, so there's a real relational component the way you farm, um, as well as the way that um, as you have leadership in your community. So I'm, I'm curious diving in with um, thinking about some of your farmer and rancher colleagues and... Um, you both um, are leaders in in conservation. That's one of the things that you talk and you promote. That you promote, and I'm wondering, would you say that you are are outliers in the way that you farm um, in your community? Uh, do others follow, or, or also practice a lot of the same environmental conservation practices that you try to implement on your farms?
2: Um, so, I, this is Roger. Um, I would say that I am uh, probably typical. I mean, I am a certified organic farmer, so I'm doing. There are things that I'm required to do by my voluntary participation in the USDA Organic Program, uh, and that's you know what attracted me to becoming a certified organic grower was the the conservation ethos and, and mm-hmm. building from the soil up. Right, healthy soils leads to healthy plants, health, healthy planet healthy people. Um, so that's that's why I got into being organic. It was less about some of the other things that we do in organic, but more focused on the soil because that's where it all starts. Um, and even the conventional farmers are still cover cropping. Our um, and I just want to correct the record. I'm no longer the president of the New Hampshire Association of oh. Conservation Districts or a supervisor. I've just sort of been, uh, you know, moving on to other things. Okay,
0: but, thanks for that correction. Yeah,
2: no problem. Um, But, you know, the the conservation districts and our our state NRCS office are are doing a lot of work to to promote the adoption of cover crops, minimum till techniques. Um, The districts, uh, many of the districts have equipment. The state association has equipment to rent um, so that if, you know, uh, a farmer like me with 30 acres, I don't need to spend, you know, $15,000, $16,000 Fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars on a on a no till seeder uh, to put my cover crops in. That's because um, I would never get the payback on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of these conservation things that we do do not add to yield. So if you're having a bad year, and a lot of farmers are having a tough year, we were we had a lot of rain. I, I'm not going to complain too much because I know Scott had it a lot worse than we did in Oklahoma and everybody in the Midwest. But you know, we had delayed. We were delayed getting onto our fields to plant, and. uh you know if i If I have cover crops out there or I've got to do other things I'm not making money and then I'm going to put cover crops out um, it, it is an expense that I'm not going to recover uh, you know maybe in the long term I will right it's going to mm. it's going to add value to my soil so those are always uh, the sort of tough farm side decisions you have to you have to make as an organic farmer, I don't have a choice I'm going to do it so I can maintain my certification. but I think for a lot of folks that are struggling in this farm economy. Those become more of a challenge, and especially if you have bigger acreage. You know, on 30 acres, it's not I'm not spending, not breaking the bank to, to get my cover crop seed out on that 30 acres of tilled ground. Um, but uh, you know, 3,500 acres, that's that's going to be some seed. Sure. So there's yeah. there's also the relationship between the size of your farm and the impact of these things. And of course, you know, there's more time on the tractor and the more diesel fuel spent, wear and tear on equipment on the bigger acreage. Mm-hmm. Um, that I firmly believe they do return a, a value. It's just, you know, two or three bad years in a row, it, it gets harder and harder to yeah. um, justify the expense in the short term. So that's why um, the USDA, through the Natural Resource Conservation Service, you know, which is authorized under the Farm Bill, what we call Title II, the conservation title, you know, really provides a lot of uh, cost share and technical assistance for farmers uh, to put those practices on the ground and just to go back to you know Scott talking about um the dust bowl i mean that is that was the ecological crisis of my father's generation and uh and my grandfather's i mean that was that was a big deal and this country came and acted you know took bold action and that was the soil conservation act and then the domestic allotment act the original farm bill and within 6 years we had reduced soil erosion so um, Dramatically, I think it was like sixty percent or something um, of the after the implementation of that act. So, you know, we're we're in a we're in a climate crisis now. Some folks aren't comfortable with that term, but I think anybody that works the land uh, has seen um, a lot of volatility in our our weather. If they don't want to recognize it as a climate pattern, the science is certainly there. And regardless of the of the cause. We, we know now that we can sequester carbon um, in the soil through good farming practices, um, and we know now that there should there will likely, very likely, be um, a market for farmers to sequester carbon. Um, so if we can be part of the solution, um, I think that's, a, that's a, a good thing for agriculture. Uh, I think any new market would be welcome at this point. Right, Scott?
1: Um, yeah, I think the economics are extremely tough yeah, right now. And, 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 you know, it's got um, all those
2: other benefits. Um, it's not like you're letting the land revert to forest. You know, you're carbon farming. And then there's all the uh, the adjacent uh, benefits, the biodiversity, uh, the water quality improvements, um, wildlife habitat that, that goes with, um, with, you know, properly managing your lands. And, you know, farmers have uh, been good stewards of the land uh, for a long time. Uh, since the previous good stewards uh, were pushed off, and um, I think that with the right incentives, um, the right tools, uh, they can continue to being um, uh, better stewards.
0: That was that was one of the things we spoke about last week with Fred Hefner about um, uh, the the change right now, um, uh, the potential for farmers to be part of the solution um, to the climate crisis, sequestering so that carbon, but also. Um, how it is a pretty unique thing right now that we are hearing presidential candidates talk about soil sequestration. Um, I never expected to hear that term on uh, on on mainline you know TV stations and radio, but it is uh, it's becoming a, a term that um, that is is more common in our in our day to day language, which is pretty exciting. And hopefully that will be a part of what. Um, what sells this to the American people as is, is the role that farmers have to play um, in, in the market solution for, for a healthy planet.
1: The, the,
2: the science I've read, Julia, says that we can, um, that ag, and this is a, a, a sort of a spread here, from 20 to 40% globally, and that perhaps we can sequester, you know, that through good agricultural practices or, or carbon, I don't know what the right term is, carbon-neutral, carbon-friendly uh, farming practices. We could sequester twice of that much, I think is what I, I read. So we can certainly have a much bigger impact. So there's tremendous market, and it's as simple as putting down cover crops, right? So yeah. Uh, so it can be start, and hopefully it would grow. You know, right now I think organic farming, which is 2% of all agronomic acres in this country, and that's growing rapidly. We'd need a pretty significant um, we'd need to get a bit faster for a regenerative uh, agriculture and um which would be anything that is putting more into the soil than it's taking out right i mean that's how sort of i define the term i suppose lots of folks are trying to create definitions for it now but
0: and as we think about some of those barriers to farmers, um, obviously the cost is one that you mentioned, the cost of putting down cover crops. I know some areas like uh, here in the, in the D.C. region, um, especially uh, the, the Chesapeake watershed, they have been uh, paying farmers to incentivize them to put down cover crops and have seen improvements in the Chesapeake, the water right. quality. Right. There are there other barriers uh, for farmers, other logistically cultural barriers. What are what are what's holding folks back?
2: Well, I think this the issue has been um, unduly politicized. Uh, I think just the era we're in, where everything is here on one side or the other, uh, hasn't really helped us get to the uh, implementation of solutions phase. But I'm going to let. You know, that, this is part of the beauty of being in an organization like the Farmers Union, where, you know, a uh, organic farmer from the Northeast and a, uh, you know, uh, Oklahoma, uh, you know, grain and, and cattle farmer are on the same page on an issue and are, are learning to talk to each other and and working that out to the constituents we represent so Mm. i'm going to let scott take Mm. it from there
0: yeah and scott and roger you said that you're you're more typical in in the northeast and uh, scott i'm wondering would you say that you are typical in oklahoma and what are some of the barriers for folks in your area
1: well i I would say that i am probably pretty typical our operation Um, you know we see more and more no-till being done in our area uh, as as well and we we actually see some cover crops being planted, um, like um, some radishes uh, that are used to actually mm-hmm. break up the soil mm-hmm. that a plow used to do, mm-hmm. and now the radish the plant can actually, with its big root, break up the soil, the hardpan, and so then when you do put your crop in, those roots can go down and actually will, the land will take in more water, um, and it just makes the... Again, we're talking about soil health, yeah. but we are seeing a movement to it. Uh, more and more people wanting to do it, and I think some of this is is actually driven by the economics of it. Sure. It is very difficult. We're in an area where we pretty well grow commodities and have a very limited opportunity to sell our products directly to. Uh, consumers
0: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, because we are in a very sparsely populated part of the United States and we're a long ways from the consumers where Roger's very close and they can market a lot of his direct and we don't have that opportunity here uh, very much Uh, on a very limited scale I do sell some beef uh, directly to the consumers here on our ranch uh, but it's a small part of our operation but I, I think, I think, uh, really, uh, we need a, um, a really commitment from the, from the entire, you know, the United States government that, hey, this is something we need to do and it's worth doing, it's worth spending some money on and, um, and get some buy in and get it. I think the farmers and ranchers, um, are looking for any way that they can stay on the land and make a living. And when we talk about being a good steward of the land, the family farmer has always been the very best stewards of the land. Uh, just like on my farm, for five, now six generations, our family lives on that land. We eat the food that's produced mm-hmm. on that land. We drink the water that comes from our wells there on that land. And so no one has a, a more vested interest in... Taking care of the land and being good stewards, than the family farms. But that you are do just need way to, ways to ways to survive. One generation to the next.
0: Yeah, I was I was going to ask the radishes. Is there a market for those, or are they just planted as cover crops?
1: No, they're just planted as a cover crop. Yeah, and, um,
0: yeah. and working out those financials shatter, is one of the uh, challenges. The
1: compaction in the ground. Yes.
0: Okay. Okay. Um. Well, I. I want to ask real briefly, so I know that the National Farmers Union has supported uh, Cory Booker's Climate Stewardship Act, um, but has not thrown their support behind the Green New Deal. And, And I think that's really interesting because the... The Climate Stewardship Act is is pretty uh, progressive in the way that it advocates for things like paying farmers for ecosystem services, which is, is sort of a re-identification for farmers, thinking about being their, their heroes of carbon sequestration, not just food production. Um, and that's through paying them for things like cover crops, as well as planting trees and restoring wetlands. Um, so why is the Farmers Union willing to support a bill like that but not throw its support or behind the Green New Deal. Can you help us understand some of those dynamics?
2: Um, well, I'm happy to talk about the, the, uh, Senator Booker's climate stewardship act because I, you know, um, was uh, a driver of getting, um, you know, putting that before the, the board. Uh, in the case, in the, in that case, um, we we need. Senator Booker's Act, especially the Ag part, really focuses on just adding a lot more dollars to existing programs. So rather than, you know, I'm sure we'll see some really um, forward-looking uh, proposals coming out, especially as we, you know, get through the Climate Select Committee and ramp up to the next Farm Bill, but simply putting more money into the Conservation Stewardship Program, adding more CRP acres, the Conservation Reserve Program, and more money in targeted areas of equip so so those things that do improve soil health
0: that's the environmental starting. quality uh,
2: so to it, me it was something of a no brainer to start with what we know what we know works hmm. um, and do more of it
0: i think ferd hefner last week said we already have the tools in the toolbox it's just right. about yeah implementing yeah, them in need the right to direction get
2: them out to the farms
0: hmm. yeah
1: and i on think the, one the, of our uh, barriers here um whether it be real or con- or a perceived barrier but this is a large cattle producing state as you mentioned earlier um it is our number one ag crop here it is actually cattle production uh, more than any of the grains and um i think the a lot of concern that i've heard from the ranchers around it's um is the methane uh, gas production Uh, penalizing the cattle farmers and Mm. for uh, blaming the cattle for the methane gas and all that and so i think there's a little pushback here in our state um, mainly because of that one issue Mm. with the green new deal and um, i believe there's a lot of things in there that we could all agree on but that's one of the kind of the things, it's a kind of a non-starter here in my part of the world.
0: Gotcha. Well, that's a great transition because last week uh, for the, the action item that I asked of Ferd Hefner, he had a really uh, a nuanced reflection on how, how listeners can think about um, the role of livestock production. And um, I think that really adds something to thinking about the role that livestock producers play. Um, even though in the U.S. we do consume a lot of beef, and that might be one of the things that we have to address. Um, But um, I encourage listeners to tune into that. And then I'm wondering, Scott and Roger, if you have just a quick one-liner, if there's um, some, a guest that, uh, sorry, the tradition of asking guests for an action item, is there one thing, um, it can be very simple, that listeners could do in their own lives uh, to to change our food system for the better.
1: Go ahead, <laughs> Go ahead, Roger. That
0: one. Go ahead.
2: Well, uh, I, you know, I I don't know, Julia, that I have I have one thought, but I think you know what you're doing in this conversation by bringing a voice that urban people, uh, you know that city folks aren't hearing is the commodity farmer. I just was at the James Beard uh, foundation chef summit and, and, you know, as a organic direct marketing farmer that works with chefs, I was like, you guys all know me, but do you know your commodity farmer? Do you know mm-hmm. the challenges they have? And I think that's really important. And, and you talking about the green new deal, you know, and those talking points that came out were pretty insensitive to, I think to a large segment of our agricultural <laughs> population. Yeah. Um, and if they had been as insensitively uh, framed to any other population in this country, uh, you know, they'd be censured. You know, somebody would be being censured uh, for, you know, for being so dismissive of, uh, of an entire um, subset of our of our citizenry. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they, you know, rural folks uh, are involved in agriculture. They are um, uh, they are the backbone of our food production system. And they need to be at the table. Uh, I know we often just sort of hold them up as a, as an industry, as the agribusiness. But these are real people out there, people like Scott and his family and, and hundreds and hundreds of others I've had the pleasure of working with at the Farmers Union. So I, I think I'd say get to know your commodity farmer and uh, start there. Meet people where they're at.
0: That's great. Hashtag know your commodity farmer and hashtag... Farmers can be the heroes of sexy soil.
1: <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would say, uh, you know, I, I would uh, challenge the consumers or encourage them to find out where their food actually comes from. Hmm. And um, so sometimes that is very difficult to do. Sure. But, uh, but if they can uh, know where that food comes from, that... Um, it came from a family farm, and it didn't come from overseas, and it didn't come from, um, you know, big factory-type operations, but it came from a family farm. Um, I I think that's good, but I think it's very difficult for the consumer to to get that information. Even the country of origin uh, labeling that uh, we've asked for for years and years and years, uh, so that the consumer could make that choice and be better informed, uh, it, it just seems like uh, it's so difficult. Um, unless the consumer can buy that food directly from the farm, such as Rogers, mm-hmm. um, you know, then, then they know where it comes from, and then otherwise, if they're buying um, the commodities that I produce on my farm, uh, most they really don't know if it came from mm-hmm. my place or it came from South America or, yeah. or, or some other place.
0: Well, that's so. a, a great reminder to know that, that it's not just our hyper-local farmers that, that want to be known, that we we can build bridges to, to make those connections to wherever those farmers are based.
1: Yep. Great. I think that's right.
0: Well, Roger and Scott, thank you both so much for being willing to have this conversation. I think... Um, to know your commodity farmer, you have to have commodity farmers who are willing to, to get on the air and, and share, share with listeners. Um, but I also want listeners to be able to, to f- continue to follow you. So I want to make sure I've got all your details right. So the, um, the AFR OFU Cooperative, uh, you can find them on Facebook, fa- Facebook at American Farmers and Ranchers. And at, on Twitter and Instagram at Farm. Org A-O-R-G. So A-F-R Farm Org. And what's great is uh, a f r know if you also have a youth Facebook group, so you can see what the next generation is up to. And that is A-F-R Youth. And same on Twitter and Instagram, A-F-R Youth. Um, and their website is A-F-R co uh Roger, folks, can follow you um, on Twitter at at Roger Noonan. That's Noonan, N-O-O-N-A-N. And you can also check out the New England's Farmer Union at newenglandfarmersunion.org. Um, they are also on Facebook, New England's Farmer Union. Um, and that's, oh, wait, Farmers Union New... Do I have this right? E-N-G for New England, right? Yep. New England. Yep. New E-N-G. And membership
2: is open to anybody that eats.
0: Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> Did I get all those details right? Sounds good. Okay. So Sounds this good. is a great way to know your New England and your and your commodity farmer in Oklahoma. Get to know these communities. Um, next week, we will be hearing from an advocacy leader um, in from the Food Chain Workers Alliance and HEAL Alliance. Um, to hear about the crucial role that not only farm operators, but also farm laborers and workers throughout the food system play in achieving a more sustainable food system. And then after that, we'll be hearing from soil scientists and a farmer in Nebraska working to improve healthy soil. Hashtag Sexy Soils, everyone. You can follow me at Soil Soul Food. Um, and thank you for tuning in to Full Service Radio. We'll see you next week.